Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Quadcast. I'm Dana Humphrey, associate director of the Mary Christie Institute. Our guest today is Dr. Samantha DeCaro, a psychologist and director of clinical outreach and education for the Renfrew Center, a national residential eating disorder facility. Dr. DeCaro, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm so happy to have you on today. I'd like to start pretty generally. If you could just give us a brief landscape of eating disorders among college age young people today. Sure. So when folks are going off to college, This is a really important time to think about screening for eating disorders because they're at the age when we see eating disorders happen. So young adult years, teenage years, this is really the onset of many eating disorders. Not just one thing causes an eating disorder. So there are many different factors that come together that can create the perfect storm for the development of an eating disorder different things that might make someone vulnerable. And going off to college, actually, there are multiple factors at play. Young folks are maybe living away from home for the first time. Going to college is a big transition. They're maybe moving away from their friends, their support system. And so these are the types of stressors that can trigger on an eating disorder for folks who maybe already have certain psychological or genetic vulnerabilities to developing one. So the other issue, too, I want to add is that college campuses, I mean, oftentimes drinking culture is quite prevalent and there are many different factors that play into that. So, for instance, young folks who maybe are drinking and fearful of weight gain, fearful of the freshman 15, they may be restricting their intake, manipulating food in some way in order to drink on campus with their friends. So. There are a lot of different factors on campus that could increase someone's risk of engaging in disordered eating and maybe even developing an eating disorder. Thanks so much for talking about some of those specific risk factors for college students. And I wonder, in terms of prevalence and incidence, and we'll get to prevention and treatment later on, but in terms of what we're seeing since the pandemic in terms of prevalence numbers, has that changed a lot or... Did it change for a short period of time during 2020 when everything got really shut down? What effect has the pandemic had in that way? Yeah, the pandemic has had a major effect on mental health and specifically eating disorders. There are certain things that will increase risk and there are certain things that will really, an eating disorder can really thrive in certain environments. And the pandemic sort of created a lot of different factors that contributed to the development of an eating disorder, but also maybe the worsening of one for someone who maybe already was diagnosed with an eating disorder. So the isolation, for instance, we know that eating disorders thrive in isolation. And of course, everyone was quite literally isolated during the pandemic. So people also turned a lot to virtual spaces to connect with people. But that's a double-edged sword because what we know about social media is that It can really be an environment where people are comparing themselves, comparing their bodies, comparing 
the status just really of their lives, trying to see where they measure up compared to their peers. And comparison can be also, can be fuel for an eating disorder, especially for those who are struggling already with body image issues. So the pandemic also created an adaptive level of anxiety. When we talk about anxiety, that sometimes anxiety serves a function and fear serves a function. And I think the pandemic created some anxiety and fear for all of us. But for those who struggle with their mental health, their anxiety became unmanageable. And so we saw very high rates of anxiety, depression. I know with our call volume, for instance, we saw increases. I mean, between 2019 and 2020, our call volume was up 140%. So we were seeing way more inquiries way more folks interested in learning about eating disorder treatment. And I think also with the pandemic, our schedules were wildly disruptive. I mean, kids were pulled out of school, parents, their schedules changed with work. And so with schedule changes come eating changes and sleep schedule changes. And all of that can be very disruptive to the natural routines that maybe we've developed. And so any kind of change in transition all of these stressors all coming together at the same time, it makes perfect sense that eating disorders were really thriving during this period. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, a perfect storm. I want to just pick up on what you said about social media, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I'm curious if you have any information about the effect that social media has. Is there any research that shows positive effects in finding community online, or is it really dangerous for folks who are at risk for eating disorders? Right. Well, I think there are definitely pros and cons to social media when you have an eating disorder. Depending on what accounts you follow, depending on what hashtags you're searching under, when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, you can find access to dietitians who specialize in eating disorders, therapists who specialize in eating disorders who are giving out free information, free support, um, free resources. And also you can find a sense of community, other people online who are also in recovery, sharing inspiration, sharing their own stories, really giving hope for folks that so people don't feel so alone and it breaks down stigma. But on the other side of things, you can easily find yourself on a side of social media where there are folks who are promoting disordered eating, certainly the diet industry, the fitness industry, it's really everywhere. And so that can also feed into those who are struggling with their eating or with their body image. And I think what also is very challenging for folks is the tendency to compare themselves to peers. I think we, we talk a lot about the dangers of comparing yourself to celebrities or comparing yourself to people in the modeling industry. But the reality is we're way more likely to compare ourselves to the people that seem similar to us. And so when you're on these image-based platforms, it can be really tempting to start comparing body size, body parts, taking a look at which images are getting the most likes, which ones are getting the most comments. And it can be really damaging whether you are just simply a passive scroller or if you're someone who actively posts, either way, there are going to be challenges with that. And, and it can definitely impact your mental health, but it can go both ways. 
Thank you for going on that little tangent with me. I think that is so interesting. I'd like to get back to sort of college students generally and specifically college students with eating disorders. What are some of their unique needs? And I think when I talk about college students and this in this way, I'm talking about a four year college student who's living on a residential campus. Right. So definitely there is a need for college students to know what resources are available to them. And I think there are many college students that aren't even sure where to go to get the help that they need. I think many college students also might need some help navigating their insurance options. I know many colleges offer sort of school-based, school-sponsored insurance, but I'm not sure that college students always know where to go to get help, where to go to get support, and how to get things financed. And I think they need some help navigating that. I think college students have many needs, especially depending on how many marginalized social identities they occupy. For instance, if there's a college student who's part of the LGBTQ community, does this student feel like they are on an inclusive, accepting campus? Do they have a sense of community? As we know, LGBTQ folks are at higher risk for eating disorders and mental health issues. So, you know, depending on college students who, you know, occupy multiple marginalized identities, do they have community? Do they have safe spaces? Do they feel like they're living in a culture that's accepting of them on campus? So I think all of that is is really important And college students, there can sometimes be a lot of pressure for college students to get a degree in a very strict and rigid timeline and a lot of pressure to choose their major within a certain amount of time. And I'm not so sure college students are always prioritizing their health or their mental health. And I think sometimes they need some encouragement because there are situations where, you know, a student might need to take a break from college to pursue mental health treatment, to pursue residential treatment for an eating disorder. And I'm not sure college students always realize that that's an option and they might not know exactly how to navigate it either. So getting that support, that permission, that encouragement to put their mental health first, to put their health first, I think can really go a long way for a student who might be struggling. In addition, I think, you know, college students, there's still stigma. There's stigma that they'll be judged for seeking out mental health services. There was a Healthy Mind study in 2020, and a large percentage of the students did did mark down on the survey that they had some fear that they would be judged for seeking out mental health services. I think college students really need to feel like they're on a campus that treating your mental health is normalized and there's not stigma around it, that it's encouraged and it's available. So the more college students can get those messages, I think the better off they'll be. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up stigma because I think it's interesting what we've seen happen over the past five years, 10 years, 15 years. And I think we're seeing a huge breakdown in stigma for mental health writ large, especially in college campuses. But when you dig into that, it seems like that might have differing effects depending on what mental health issue you're talking about. Depression, anxiety, 
so common on college campuses, getting to be, unfortunately, like a universal experience on college campuses. Not quite, but maybe less so with something like an eating disorder where it's lower numbers. There might be more shame associated with that. Right. That's a really good point. With college kids who might be struggling with depression or anxiety, I think it's important for any listeners out there to know that eating disorders rarely travel alone. And we often do see them alongside of anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD. And if someone is coming in for treatment for one of those disorders that we commonly see sort of travel alongside an eating disorder, it's an opportunity to screen for disordered eating, for body image issues, because there's a chance that if someone already has those risk factors, they might also be struggling with food or their body. So it is important that we remember that mental health is a complex issue. Rarely does someone just struggle with one thing. And disorders rarely occur by themselves. And it's important for us to be aware of that. Even having an eating disorder elevates risk for suicidality, for instance. So if someone is coming in for treatment for an eating disorder, we want to also keep in mind that they might also have these other very serious issues as well. And we want to be screening for those. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that very important point. We have a article in our upcoming magazine this July that will touch on the relationship between anxiety and suicidality. And so it's really interesting to hear that perspective as well. I want to talk about prevention. And our audience is primarily people who work on college campuses, college administrators, faculty, that sort of thing. So I'd like to know what changes can colleges make to help in prevention on campus? Oh, that's a great question. There are many different things I I think that college staff can do. The first is to be aware of the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder. And the hope is that if we can recognize some of the signs and symptoms, we might be able to check in with students and ask how they're doing emotionally. We might be able to catch an eating disorder early because what we know is that eating disorders are best treated early and and aggressively. And so the faster we can catch it, the better. I think it's important to understand the root issues of an eating disorder. What are the things in the society that drive eating disorders? And diet culture, weight stigma, oppression, these are big systemic issues that really are at the root of eating disorders and disordered eating. And so just to give you an example, statistically, Nita estimated that 20 to 25% of dieters will go on to develop an eating disorder. That's a lot. And so when we're thinking about health services on college campuses, when we're talking about wellness initiatives on college campuses, my question would be, what's the focus? Is the focus on weight loss Is it on dieting? What are the sort of values? What is the culture around health and wellness on campus? Because I would actually encourage colleges to take the focus off of weight and weight loss because what we know about weight is that it is an unreliable measure of health. And so there are many other ways to measure health. There are many other markers, including promoting health-promoting behaviors 
So I would encourage colleges to take a look at, I know oftentimes they're sort of like wellness fairs or wellness sort of initiatives and to really take a closer look, maybe even consult um, with those who specialize in eating disorders in body image and to take a look at whether or not those initiatives are doing more harm than good. Medical services, is there a focus on, on weight, on BMI? All of these things can impact someone's body image and increase the risk of eating disorders and disordered eating. Media literacy has shown to be a protective factor for body image and has been used as an intervention to prevent body image issues and disordered eating. So if colleges would, would be able to roll out free media literacy programs or perhaps have eating disorder specialists come in and do talks or trainings with their students, with their staff, all of that I think would be really helpful. And also just for college staff at the counseling center, hopefully there are trainings on eating disorders, on the dangers of weight stigma. All of that is, is so important when you're working in the mental health field and on a college campus. So I have to tell you, I'm like learning so much. and This is so interesting. I have another little rabbit hole that I want to go down just for a yeah. second. The role of the body positivity movement, is that been positive or negative or has have you not really seen an effect or is that just very difficult to measure? Yeah, I, I think the, the, you know, the body positive movement, I think, has been very helpful for folks who have been the victim of weight stigma and have been marginalized in this society. The body positive movement was started for folks in marginalized bodies. And it gave them a space to celebrate their bodies as is and sort of to go against the status quo, you know, this belief in our society that thin is always healthier and that fat is always sick. And the reality is people can be healthy at all different weights, shapes, and sizes. And weight is just not a very reliable measure of our health. So we can't use it as a measure. So there have been studies on that. And I think we're hopefully moving more in that direction medically. But I think the body positive movement has been very beneficial. There are other movements as well that I think can be very helpful, such as body neutrality, which is this concept around really viewing the body in a neutral way, acknowledging what it can do acknowledging that it gives us certain experiences, but really shifting the focus to more meaningful aspects of ourselves, our personality, our core values, our relationships. I think in this culture, our body takes up such a big piece of the pie when it comes to our identity, it comes to our worth. And body neutrality is really a movement that encourages a shift where we're just not thinking about our body so much and making health sort of like the be-all, end-all of what we should be pursuing. There's this concept of healthism in our culture, that the pursuit of health is some kind of moral obligation and that we're failing morally if we're not the healthiest version of ourselves as possible. But the reality is health is only one part of our lives. And there's mental health and there's our social health and our spiritual health. And, and there's so many different aspects of 
who we are, we're much more complex than that. And body neutrality can be a way to challenge the idea that our body should be the focus of everything that we do. Yeah, I've never heard that term before. So thanks so much for sharing that. I want to go back to the pandemic effects just for a moment before we close and talk about what effect, if anything, it has had on prevention and treatment. Yeah, I I mean, my hope is that the pandemic gave us an opportunity to talk more about mental health and eating disorders and learn more about the effects of isolation, the effects of food insecurity. That was another big issue with the pandemic was just that anxiety around whether or not we were going to be able to get the food we need at the grocery store. And we know from the research that food scarcity is actually a factor in eating disorders and disordered eating. Those who experience food insecurity are at higher risk of those things. So I hope also that the the pandemic gave us a chance to really prioritize, to give us permission to prioritize our mental health, to maybe take a step back and reevaluate our values and the way we want to spend our time, what's truly important to us. I had done a lot of talks and trainings around the pandemic and eating disorders. And I guess from my perspective, I hope that it just created some space to talk more about how a global pandemic can impact not only our mental health, but our relationship with food and our relationship with our bodies. And just to bring more awareness to those issues and to break down the stigma around seeking help for those issues. Thank you so much. And Dr. Takara, I want to give you a moment to leave us with any parting thoughts or last comments. Yeah, if I were to share some parting thoughts, it would be for anyone out there who is struggling with food or with their body image. First of all, you're not alone and there is help available and you don't really even have to have an eating disorder, like a clinical eating disorder diagnosis to improve your relationship with food and your relationship with your body. And I just hope people out there understand how connected our relationship with food and our body is to our overall mental health, how connected it is to everything. And improving those things can improve our well-being on a much larger scale. Thank you so much. And like I said before, I learned so much during this conversation. So thank you so much for being here and taking the time to talk to us. And we hope to hear more from you soon. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 